Welcome to episode 113 of Canada's Pinball Podcast. Uh, this is a really special podcast. This one is one of those that just means so much to me because I get to talk to someone who I believe, and I know you believe, is probably one of the most important figures in the history of all pinball. And for me to talk to this gentleman, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to uh, what I do with this podcast because I think for those of you who have listened, who have listened to Canada's Pinball Podcast from day one and seen this podcast move in different directions, I think people are really satisfied with where we've ended up. We have a podcast that covers the news, that asks the tough questions, um, that doesn't hold back in, in, in seeking the truth about pinball, uh, but also a podcast that interviews individuals uh, that are really interesting, that have great stories to tell, and, and we, we deliver that to you uh, on, on a very frequent basis. And I've had the pleasure this year and over the past few months of talking to some incredible individuals, everyone from Zombie Yeti to JJ at Game Exchange uh, to the Black Knight uh, to George Gomez. Uh, and there, you know, there's many other individuals out there that I've spoken to as well that, that just really, really are passionate about pinball and share that passion on this podcast. So I thank them. Um, so when I, when I was reading a lot of the news recently, what's going on in pinball, uh, and, and the, the main issue that I see a lot is, is licensing issues and, and themes of pinball machines. And I always think of one man when when I think about licensing and themes and and where pinball is going and that's Mr. Roger Sharp and when I reached out to Roger it was great because I, I asked him I said Roger now's a really great time for us to talk about what's going on in pinball uh, what goes on when it comes to licensing a pinball machine and he was he was all about uh, coming on the show and was super excited to do it and so I I can't tell you how excited I am to air this interview with Roger Sharp. His insights into the hobby are, are phenomenal. You know, he's a man who, his goal is quite clear, and it'll come through quite clear when you listen to this interview. He wants more people to play pinball. He wants pinball to be out there for the masses. He's not about these super expensive machines. He's not about the complexity of machines with nobody to, to fix them, right? He sees the world um, as, I feel like he sees everyone as a potential pinball player. If only we can make pinball accessible enough to those people, if only we can make pinball easy enough for operators uh, to put on location, everyone would enjoy pinball. And I sort of agree that pinball is this thing that when people walk past it, they'll want to play it. It's just, it's just got that magnetic quality. And so without further ado, I want to thank Roger for coming on the show. I want to thank all of you for listening. I know you love these interviews. They always get the most listens out of all my podcasts. Um, so I give to you on Canada's Pinball Podcast a very special guest, Mr. Roger Sharp. Let's roll the tape. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome to Canada's Pinball Podcast, Roger Sharp. I don't even know if Roger needs an introduction. He is an author, a pinball historian, a designer, the man who pretty much saved pinball for all of us in 1976 when he hit that 
that shot on bank shot with the New York City Council. Roger, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I, I love the introduction. I, I think that for most people, they probably just know me better as being the father of Josh and Zach. I think that that's my <laughs> legacy. But uh, yeah, all the other stuff that preceded them. I think, uh, well, but, and Roger, I mean, we wouldn't have pinball today the way we have it if, if it wasn't for you. And I think everyone owes you a great debt of gratitude for hitting that shot in, in front of the lawmakers. Um, and pinball's back. Like, what are, your, what are your thoughts on where you think, you know, it's looking at pinball in 2017, how, how happy are you that 40 years later after you hit that shot, there's sort of like this resurgence happening with pinball? Um, yeah, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm incredibly gratified by all that has ensued over these past decades. And, you know, let's face it, some of the ups and some of the downs. Um, you know, I used to get asked years ago, you know, where did I think pinball was going to be in the 21st century? Was it still going to be around? And I always made the answer uh, that if and when anybody ever was able to create something that gave me the same type of tactile experience, um, the, the sensory experience and immersion that pinball gives me, uh, then sure, maybe. But that device, that invention, has yet to emerge. Right. And uh, you know, again, it's it's uh, it's really a, a a great thing I think for you know not only the existing players that are out there and you know many of the collectors and enthusiasts and hobbyists and and so on and obviously for the factories that are employing designers and programmers and graphic artists and, and all the rest of it that are that are creating pinball but i think as well and maybe with escher having won uh, the papa tournament uh, a couple of weeks ago it's uh, really very pleasing to see that there is yet another generation that's ready to step up and enjoy pinball whether they play competitively or not at least that it hasn't fallen by the wayside and become something that is totally and completely nostalgic um instead it's really you know a contemporary form of leisure time entertainment so um so right. from that standpoint it's uh, it's kind of neat to see although there are some still very daunting obstacles uh to have pinball be as pervasive as it was uh you know back in the late 70s what um what do you think those obstacles are? Obviously, the, the arcades have dwindled to tiny numbers, replaced now by barcades. Um, and we used to find pinball everywhere, right, in the 70s and 80s. You'd walk sure. into bodegas, you'd walk into Chinese restaurants, and, and there was pinball all over the place. Do you, It's probably never going to get back to that level, obviously, with the advent of home video games and other forms of entertainment, and now everyone gaming on their mobile devices. Um, so that level is probably not going to happen. But is, is there, do you, do you think we're going to see more and more sort of barcades and other sort of family centers pop up where, where pinball is a part of it in the future? Well, it's interesting when you say, you know, with video games and all the rest of it, I would counter that by saying that in the mid to late 70s when there was this great surge and admittedly the changeover from solid state to or from electromechanics to solid state, and, and prior really to video kind of coming on the scene, you had something called, uh, you know, cable TV that started, and VHS players, and VCRs, and all the rest of it, and, you know, everybody thought that that was going to be the death of coin-operated amusement games, because 
who was going to want to leave their home now that they could watch movies and tape various shows and you know still remember it's like it's 14 days and you can tape up to seven different things and mm -hmm. you know have these tapes readily at hand nobody's going to go to movies anymore and, uh and i think that you know the transitioning of of what our options are for entertainment I think the, the critical part, and it goes back to you know the, the questions you asked, and I guess the, the part that I kind of laid out to ask that question of you know what are the obstacles? It's not a question of there not being a desire potentially on the part of bars, taverns, and, and again, much was made you know many years ago in terms of DUI and happy hours and people moving away from it, and now we see this emergence of barcades. Uh, which I think is great. I, th I think it's a step in the right direction. I think the biggest obstacle, if you will, is the need by location owners and equipment operators to maintain their equipment. And I think that that is a challenge for pinball to kind of become more mainstream. You know, there was a point in time, as you had said, where you had, you know, operators that are, were out there and they may have had a route with, you know, multiple hundreds of games. And, you know, they had folks on staff who would go around not only as collectors, but also to take care of the games, fix them, change a light bulb, right. you know, wipe, wipe down a control panel on a video game. And, and those people have become far and few between. And I think that, you know, colleges today, and I'm not suggesting this be the case, offer courses in designing and creating video games uh you know whether vocational schools are out there training people to be you know technicians if you will versus having them be you know engineers of some sort um that is really you know where the greatest need is you Do know you if, I, if i'm a if i'm a manufacturer right and i want to have a broader <clears throat> distribution of my equipment other than people people's basements how do I get it out there? How do I encourage, and I'll use a classic example, how do I encourage um, a Dave & Buster's or a Chuck E. Cheese to take pinball machines and operate them? Um, that's really difficult. You know, who's going to train them? Right. Them being somebody on staff who is going to be dedicated to looking after the proper operation and maintenance of all of the games. And all of the games today tend to be, you know, somewhat mechanical when you look at novelty redemption equipment and family entertainment centers. But, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a, as daunting a task to keep a skee-ball operational or a stop-the-light type of game operational as it is to maintain a pinball machine. And I think that that's, that's the hurdle. Right. And, and, Roger, do you think that when it comes to pinball innovation, because we hear a lot about innovation in modern pinball the movement to lcd and stuff that's more visually attractive but if you still lift up a, a stern pinball machine in 2017 you still got to take out the soldering gun if you want to you know quickly make a, make a fix and to, would you like to see more innovation that allows these things to be worked on in real time without the same making it easier for operators to make quick changes on the fly to these things versus uh, a more highly skilled person's requirement for, for maintenance on these games? Uh, that would be ideal if it were possible. Look, you know, we tried to come really close. We 
being Williams Valley Midway way back when with Pinball 2000. And the idea that you could, you know, take out an entire play field, replace it with another play field, and, you know, Larry DeMar and the other guys, uh, George Gomez and so on, uh, were very adept at being able to do that kind of a switch. You know, and, and it, the intention was really for the operator to say, look, you know, keep one of these in the back of the truck or whatever else. And if you have a problem with, you know, uh, Revenge from Mars, switch it over to uh, episode one or switch it over to Wizard Blocks or Playboy and the other games that were you know, going to be coming down the pipeline. And uh, I think that that was a, a great approach. Uh, it also allowed in terms of design and functionality the ability for the location owner to go in and take care of the game without going into the cash box, which has always been a major hurdle. Right. So if you leave a set of keys for that operator, well, you know, if I'm going to go out or that location owner, if I'm going to go out and collect, maybe all the coinage is not going to be in there that should be. So we tried to come up with some things that on the surface might have seemed to be somewhat nominal, but in some ways we're really absolutely addressing the concerns within, you know, the operating industry. Having said that, yes, if there was a way to make the machines function better, be easier to fix, uh, it would be great. But, you know, I'll use the analogy. Car manufacturers still, you know, develop and build with new technologies, automobiles, and we still have issues where, you know, we find ourselves going into a Midas or we find ourselves going into a Pep Boys or any other place or our local service station or going back to the dealership for routine maintenance because the majority of people who buy cars aren't able to go in and fix all of the stuff. I'm not, come on, right, I'm not right. going to take out a battery and replace it. Even if I was, you know, 90 years younger, I'm not going to do that. I don't know how to change that hose or right. fix that electrical thing that's going on because there's a light on the dashboard telling me that something is off. Right. So I think that, you know, we've never been able uh, as an, as an industry to acknowledge the fact that some of the things in our daily lives, TV sets, washer dryers, automobiles, uh, are maybe outside the scope of what our uh, ability to, to fix might be. And pinball kind of falls in the same trap, if you will. And, you know, if somebody were to be able to really take care of everything, the, the chances of things malfunctioning or going wrong are lessened. I, I, I'll go back to a great example, which was, you know, my, my dear friend Steve Epstein in the Broadway Arcade in New York, when Steve had, you know, 60, 70 pinball machines at the corner store of the Broadway Arcade before it shifted down the street to a smaller space. Mm-hmm. You know, the daily uh, event, if you will, for he and his workforce, sweep the floors, clean, dust, wipe down video games, and go through each and every pinball machine. And if there's a problem, let's check it out. That was every day. Right. I mean, I, I don't know where the barcades are, by and large, in terms of going through their games. I had the good fortune, uh, I guess, a little over a week or so ago for Ellen, my wife, and I, uh, we were invited up to North Star in Montreal, and Adam and Justin and, and the troops have an incredible barcade. They just overturned the law there, which allowed them to actually operate their business legally, uh, and their games are in pristine shape. 
um, because they actually care for them each and every day. So, you know, the difficulty is, number one, absentee ownership, just by the basis of the business owner. Right. Absentee maintenance, if you will, on the part of the operator. And, you know, we're left as a consumer to deal with whatever we wind up encountering. And if that experience is not a good one, we're doubtful to go back to it again. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the notion that a pinball machine can't earn money to the same extent that a video game can um, is actually fulfilled because guess what? It can't because right. the flip is working or you know these features are off. Well, and these modern redemption games are really designed to just get you to keep pumping dollars in, you know, and and they require very little maintenance. So, so if you're a, if you're a if you're an operator, uh, you know, you're you're literally looking at the bottom line. And do you think, Roger? So, in terms of pricing, two of these new machines, because we hear a lot too when when a new game gets announced and it's eight thousand, nine thousand dollars, that it's solely geared towards the home collector right that that an operator is not going to put a nine thousand dollar wizard of oz on location because the chances of getting that back before you you know start making profit on it are the gap became becomes so much bigger because of how much more expensive these these games have become do you think price is also a deterrent with with where some of the pinball pricing is going nowadays absolutely i mean think about it let's 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 go to an average kind of bar if you will, and maybe the pinball machine is going to do, I don't know, $120 a week. And they're working on a split, the operator and the location owner. So both of them get to pocket 60 bucks. It's a $6,000 machine. You do the math, that's 100 weeks. And that means that the game was up and functioning for all 100 weeks. So you have two years to make back your investment. Not to make a profit, to make back your investment. Right. So... So, yeah, I mean, the idea of populating, and so many of the barcades are actually doing it, populating their space with vintage video games so that somebody can, you know, play a Lunar Lander again if that's what their desire is because they're able to salvage it from somewhere. But you're finding older pinball machines that are being brought back to life uh, because the price point is a deterrent now with new equipment. And I understand it. I get it. I mean, I'm dismayed, shocked, uh, overwhelmed when I hear some of the price points right. that are going out because, you know, back in the day, a game from distribution was probably, I don't know, it depends on the customer, but probably in the low 4,000s. I when, mean, that's somewhat more reasonable. Do you think when you hear these there's new another, prices... There's another, aspect, there's another aspect to it, and I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go on, go on, Roger. I, I don't want to belabor at least this part of the discussion. The, the other problem when it comes to pinball being operated commercially is that there's still a notion, and, and what I'm going to say is probably sacrosanct to a lot of people, but when I started really getting into pinball, I was playing in Wisconsin at the, uh, when I was at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and obviously, or admittedly, it was an Attaball area. I believe very strongly in Attaball games. No specials, no free games. Uh, if you're going to give away 10 or 20% on your replay, it's $100 a week. That's 10 to $20. You've kind of cut into that. If you're doing a match feature, even if you lessen it to 2 to 5%, um, and God willing, that's the highest that you'd ever do, 
potentially you're giving away a quarter of your revenue needlessly. Right. And the fear has always been that the only reason, and whether or not you agree with this or the listeners agree to this, uh, I tend not to, but that's just me. If the belief is that the only reason people play pinball is because they can win a free game, well, then that is totally contrary to what the real allure should be for playing a game. Look, I can sit down and play a multiplayer driver, and yes, if I win my race, I get to stay on to play another 90 seconds with a new game with either the same people or different people. So in effect, yes, you are winning, in quotes, a free game. But by and large, most video games are just giving you an extension of play. You get a new life. Right. You get, you get extra time. Ooh, I've passed the threshold, and I, I now have extended time on my driving game, whatever right. the case might be. Why that mentality hasn't happened for pinball is beyond me. So, yeah, I would think that most people I know, you know, it's not the free game. It's, it's, it's really, especially in New York City, everyone who plays a lot, it's all about the getting the high score on the machine to having those right. three initials up there is everything to the guys who play frequently. And then the casual people who play, I don't even think they, they don't even know what mode is or codes are or, or free games even at stake. So I, I, I don't think free, free games are like the incentive for the most part. Um, but pricing is something we talk about on this show a lot, Roger. And I saw you at TPF and there's been, you know, the prices keep climbing up. We've got $15,000 super LEs. We've got games that are clearly targeting the wealthy home collector. Um, but even just your your sort of full-featured game now is creeping up into that seven dollars $8,000 range. Do you think the cost of manufacturing has really increased that much that we've sort of almost doubled the price of pinball over the last decade? Or is are the manufacturers just wise to the fact that their clientele uh, has deeper pockets, uh, has shown a sort of inability to, 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 to hold on to their money, right? I think pinball people get really into it and very emotional with their purchases where they just keep buying every new inbox game and the manufacturers notice that and just keep seeing where the ceiling's at and they, they haven't hit it yet. And we're at eight, $9,000 now for these LEs. Let me, let me uh, comment on that. So a new iPhone comes out. Oh, my God, i got to be first in line, and I'm going to spend $800 for it or whatever the number is, or there's a new 4D TV or a new VR headset that's coming out at some exorbitant price point. Um, you're always going to have the early adopters uh, who could care less about what the price is versus the other people who are going to say, well, if I wait six months, if I wait a year, price is going to come down. Mm -hmm. Everything that comes out in our life that touches us comes out at premium prices. Just does. Uh, you know, the cost of going to a first run movie has escalated. Uh, technology, obviously, uh, you know, whether it is computers, uh, iPhones, iPads, tablets, uh, the latest and greatest TVs. Now VR is the hot thing. Everything comes out at a premium price point. And uh, that's going after the early adopters. Well, in pinball, you have these, in quotes, early adopters. So everybody knows that, and again, it depends on theme. It depends on, I guess, the manufacturer. It depends on all of these things as to whether or not <clears throat> they believe that they can sell automatically 200 machines, 500, right. 600. Everything else above that is gravy. Now, 
the, the, the bigger challenge is, and, and it's a terrible thing to say because I don't, I don't want to see the industry get really hurt or cut off at the knees, is that if everybody, everybody being whatever proportion of the audience that we want to think of, if everybody were to hold back saying, no, sorry, ain't going to do it, do you really think that the manufacturers would continue to charge the numbers that they're charging? Because I'll, I got to tell you, and, and I'm not in a factory anymore, uh, but I have to believe that the escalation of, of price to manufacture, um, to employ, and all the rest of it is not by a quotient of 100% difference. I mean, you're just mentioning $8,000 games. Well, you know, I mentioned before that the games that Williams Valley Midway did, and I, granted, it's almost 20 years ago, um, and, and there is inflation and all these other factors that come into play. Uh, but I can't believe that, you know, it's that big a difference from a $4,000 game to an $8,000 game. Now, limited runs, meaning that you're buying less parts, so your, your bill of materials becomes different. I get that, and I understand it. And, you know, if, if all of the various companies that are out there, you know, the major companies, however you want to describe and define them, the boutiques of the world and, and whatever their profit margins are, um, we're feeding that beast as collectors uh, who are willing to pay the price. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that that's all well and good. But I think going back to, you know, how we got onto this, if we're looking at trying to have something that is commercially viable, and it's interesting because being commercially viable, meaning that more games are populated out in the real world, potentially also means that you are hopefully reaching people who may not have thought about buying their own game you know how how do you reinforce the idea of another generation of people buying games i mean it, it becomes somewhat self-fulfilling in its own way to say all right if i'm out there and i'm playing and i'm enjoying and now i'm at a point in my life where i have you know the wherewithal the space and whatever else to buy a game you know you wind up buying it look the the, the current number of collectors and enthusiasts are only getting older Where's the right. next generation other than the ones who are going to inherit whatever it is that's going to be left behind? I'm sure that Josh and Zach have already carved out my games as to who's getting what <laughs> versus whatever stuff that they're going to probably say, cannot believe he held that for that long. Let's get rid of this one. We'll sell it. Right. So, uh, so, so your again, passion, Roger, is getting as much pinball out in the public, right? You don't want to see pinball be relegated solely to the collectors right people's homes uh not because that doesn't introduce it to the youth of america unless it's those people's children which is not enough of an exposure uh to create a user base that will make it viable for these companies to survive the next 20 years right i mean i'm i'm all for the fact of being able to find a family entertainment center <clears throat> walk in and among their array of different attractions, there is a somewhat well-functioning pinball machine of whatever era. Right. Let's, I mean, that, that to me is the ideal. Let, let, Roger, let's still, talk. There's still pockets. 
yep. of places. But, you know, to your point that you said before, they're far less than they used to be. They used to be around every corner. And, you know, I think that one of the enduring parts of my pinball book are absolutely the photographs of James Hamilton where we went out of our way because I tended to want it to be this way, where we wanted to show the diversity of where you could find pinball machines. And it's right. really a celebration of that as well as the diversity of uh, the various people who were playing. Right. And that doesn't exist anymore. Roger, let's talk about, when we talk about the next generation, we talk about enticing younger individuals to explore pinball. Let's talk about how uh, the themes today seem to be solely targeting the older sort of 40 to 60 year old demographic and why do you think there there aren't more themes that would appeal to a younger demographic even a family right it's really rare that we see a licensed theme go after that more uh youthful and sort of younger demo yeah no i i agree with you and i think again the reason for it and we've just been talking about it who's the primary audience primary audience is an older person the primary audience not even a secondary audience is the location the bowling alley you know where, where children can be exposed to a pinball machine that that's not a primary driver for any of the companies currently in business but but, but if they did market research and I, I always i always harp on market research on my podcast because i work in marketing uh, but i would assume that most of these collectors though most of these home buyers have children and have children who don't really love the themes that dad is bringing home every time he gets a new pinball machine uh, and i'm just shocked though that there isn't a, a frozen pinball or more disney themes that come out that the that the parent would buy simply for the kid right there i mean right now i just saw spooky release the jetsons as sort of a family theme but to me the jetsons is even too old like that's what the older demo was into when they were a kid no no young kid knows what the jetsons is these days um, so it's it's yeah but 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 take it a step further forgetting about disney for the moment in terms of you know whatever they have that might be more contemporarily timed a la frozen um, the problem that you have is that for any of the licensors out there studios or rights holders if you're going in and what you're talking about is I have an older demographic and uh, as has been stated on, on numerous occasions over the years by uh, one of the principals of a major pinball company, we're a bar and tavern kind of place. Well, you know, do you really want frozen in a bar? No. Um, and even in a barcade. Right. Because um, it's not appealing to them. If you were to say, look, we're going to be going into family entertainment centers only then it becomes more age appropriate. And to your point, and for those people who actually care or, or have a curiosity or even have some familiarity, take a look at the themes that exist for redemption games. I mean, those are all over the lot. And I'm just thinking of one in particular that just came out or is coming out <clears throat> from one of the companies based on Paw Patrol. I mean, that's a five to nine-year-old demographic. Right. So in that arena, if you will, it is geared more to a youthful audience because their primary market is not a home market. Their primary market are family entertainment centers. Right. So, you know, it's somewhat of a dichotomy, if you will, uh, or a paradox of sorts. 
in terms of where video games go in terms of their subject matter and themes, as well as pinball. And right. then on the other side of the spectrum, you have these, you know, younger types of themes and right. games. Roger, when when I was walking around TPF and I was thinking a lot about this and, and, and sort of the <laughs> entry point into pinball uh, for younger people, the the system that's really interesting, and again, I, I don't know how well it's going to do when it goes into the marketplace, but it is P3 and Multimorphic. And have you had a chance to sort of jump on that and see what Jerry's doing with his sort of modular system? And what was interesting about it, he has a game that actually teaches you just the basics of how to play pinball. And then he also has this fun game uh, called Heads Up, where it's two machines connected to each other. That's almost like Tetris meeting pinball, meeting puzzle bobble. Um, but he's got games that really are targeting young kids as, as sort of like an entry level into pinball. Are you excited when you see someone at least making an attempt to, to make like my first pinball game? Uh, I'm intrigued by it. Uh, I'm enthusiastic about whether or not they can follow through and find an audience. So I give them right. all the credit in the world. I may not necessarily agree sometimes with some of the creative execution and just the, the, the interface, if you will. Right. But by and large, it's like, go for it. You know, I've always had the, the, the feeling that, you know, whatever can be imagined um, can actually happen. Right. If somebody can imagine something, I mean, go back to Jules Verne, who the turn of the century, and not this last century, the one before, was, uh, you know, thinking about uh, stories where people were going to the moon. And uh, I, I think that, you know, whatever Jerry's doing or anybody else that's out there, uh, you know, go for it and, and see if it resonates with, with the audience. In, in a world where there is so little original thinking when it comes to pinball, and I, I say that because it seems like everyone's relying on a licensed theme now are you are you do you wish there was more sort of creativity and just pure dreamers out there coming up with original ips for pinball well i mean i've, I've joked with uh with jack saying that your third game is actually a licensed game he said no it's not it's pat lawler doing his game and i said no 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 no, no. for the community it's a licensed pat lawler game right. and that's why people are going to gravitate to it because they love what Pat Lawler has been able to create, and uh, they're, they're going to be receptive to whatever. And I think that Dialed In has proven that, uh, you know, there is a world and a marketplace for original themes. Look, you know, uh, I know that most people think that I've carved my teeth on just doing brand licensing over the years. And my, my professional career, at least within Coinop, was, was far broader in scope than just that. Um, and... I always felt that the mix and the match between what we did with Williams Bally from 88 until 2000, or at least 1999, was to weave in licensed games, not as a necessity, uh, not as a next in line, but because there was really an ardent passion and desire uh, on the part internally by a design team uh, to say, God, we, we want that. We think that we can do really a great job. Let's see if we can get it. But nobody was wedded to it. They could still go off and create, you know, their own original themes. And I think that the reliance on only licensing 
falls back to, and maybe as an analogy, uh, in some ways, I never thought of it this way before, so I'll say it now, because it just occurred to me. I said before that uh, there are a number of people out there who believe that the only reason that people play pinball is because you have a chance to win a free game. Mm -hmm. I think by the same token, there are any number of people out there um, who believe that the only type of pinball machine that will be acceptable is if it has a license that God forbid anybody should just think of it as being just the purity of it being a pinball machine. Right. And, I, and, I, and I think that that is really distressing to me because it takes away what should be the innate appeal of, of pinball, which is just, it exists. It is what it is. And, you know, if it's a medieval madness, forgetting about the rebuild and the remake or whatever else, I mean, if it's an attack from Mars, uh, if it is a whirlwind, an earthshaker, a getaway, black knight, cyclone, uh, you know, think of all the games over the years that, you know, people really think very highly of that are not licensed games. I think that working on a license uh, can sometimes be a crutch. And, and right. I, t I take nothing away from any of the designers out there, any of the creators that are doing, you know, what they're doing. But I think that, you know, it's it's easy to take a license because there's already an inherent storyline. So how do we apply that storyline into uh, features, into playfield components of some sort or another? Right. And, uh, because the, the pinball tends to define itself, if you will as opposed to, and I guess most recently, as opposed to something like a dialed in where, you know, Pat and Ted and the rest of the team had this notion, this idea of, God, wouldn't it be great if we could have put a phone in a game? Wouldn't it be great if we could create our own little universe, our own world and do it with, you know, animations and things in the top box? I mean, that's the level of originality that uh, right. I think is what really helped define pinball to take it from where it was back in the 50s on through to the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now. So I know that George Gomez on, on some occasions in the past, at least I, I think so, if I'm misquoting him, then my apologies in advance. But I think that George was the one who at one point in time said, um, don't be surprised if you know Stern doesn't come out with an original game sometime. And it's like, okay, cool, great. Hopefully that does happen, and hopefully that game is successful so that there is motivation on the part of that particular company to do it again. When I started at Williams back in 1988, uh, one of the things that I really felt um, somewhat passionate about was licensed games. And I remember telling the powers that be that Forgetting about what Bally had accomplished back in the mid to late 70s, which really put that company on the map where before they hadn't been. Um, I said, you know, it'd be nice to do like a license game, like do one in the spring, one in the summer, one in the fall, and one in the winter. And, you know, the reaction that I got was because we had just purchased Bally Midway. Look what it did for them. It's like I understand, but right. I still believe that there's, you know, there's some way to kind of do this. I think that it could be fun. You know, the first game that we did was Elvira, and that was obviously a massive success. And it led to us being able to, again, 
embrace the notion of doing licensed content, not only for pinball, but also for video games. You know, we took something like a high-impact football, and suddenly it became, you know, NFL Blitz. And right. we took something like an Arch Rivals, and it became NBA Jam. Not the same design teams, but again, it was the idea of being able to enrich the experience thematically. And I think that, uh, you know, if you go down a path, and look at the movie industry, if you go down a path where everything has to be a superhero movie, at some point in time, there's going to be this level of excess, and there's going to be a drop-off. It's the fact of what you wind up saying, because it's always a surprise, when maybe a sequel or a proposed trilogy doesn't become the trilogy because the sequel didn't do as well. I, I think of The Matrix as being a classic example. Oh, the first movie, yes. The second and the third, oh, no way in heck. Right. I kind of missed the boat on that, and I'm not trying to point a finger at Warner Brothers. Uh, for that particular franchise, but, you know, it left people wanting something more, better, and different. And sometimes, you know, what's best is to kind of let it stand on its own merits and not necessarily plan on the repetitiveness of it. Well, it lives yeah. There. I would, ag I would agree. And it's interesting, Roger, when you look at the reception dialed in God, because I think people are starving for originality and creativity um, but people are also their own worst enemies because I think when you saw the reception of Dialed In there was also this aversion to to being open-minded to something new right how could you have a comic book explain the story how could you have a cell phone flipping and pinball people are pretty stubborn right and because I think they've been they've been sort of engineered to expect the same thing over and over again that when you change the format a little bit they're resistant but when people play dialed in right when you hear people's feedback it it's always super positive it's almost impossible not to have fun on that machine and it's going to be interesting to see how it sells though will will this game with its amazing gameplay with its great flow with it it's pat lawler game um will it win people over knowing that it's going to go up against the competition, which is going to be juggernauts in terms of themes that are coming out this year. Do you think Dialed In is going to be, going to be a, a success for Jersey Jack, Roger? Do you think it's going to struggle even though it is a great game? Well, I think that, you know, on its own merits, uh, it's a question of how you define success for the company. But I think that Probably it has, financial, you know, <laughs> right, if you're a Jersey Jack. Yeah, no, but the same, in terms of either quantities or, or you know, whatever their build rate is and, and, and so on. I think that, yes, I think that it can break through. Um, but again, I go back to the fact that you're looking at a diminished market for pinball in general. I go back to what we were talking about before. You know, the only way to really break through is to be able to get machines out in operation and not necessarily only in people's personal game rooms. Well, so, dialed in is so expensive. So I think we heard that immediately when Jack announced the price that there's oh, no yeah. way operators are going to go near this thing, even though it's got technology that brings in a younger audience with the selfies and the camera and the cell phone. It, it's it's probably three thousand dollars too expensive to even consider. Well, but even you know, even any of the other companies that are out there selling games uh, are equally expensive. Sure. So you know, I mean. The theory however of relativity. Many, however many Aerosmiths, you know, make it out into the real world as opposed to collectors, you're still looking at, unfortunately, a very finite 
industry, if I want to call it an industry. Maybe 10,000 machines in total from everybody, cumulatively, will be sold this year. Um, my God, we, we used to do that in a single game years right. ago. Um, so you have to have some form of affordable entertainment. I know that you know Stern has looked at that in the past with the pinball or whatever it was called. The pin. The, right. Yep, the strip get down. Here basically for the home. Uh, but, you know, could that have been a solution for putting pinballs out in location? And then I go back to, you know, what's that other critical aspect? Maintenance. Right. Who's going to maintain them? You know, we, we had a situation in Chicago. And I, I don't want to, you know, point fingers necessarily. But, you know, we, we had our league that we were doing at GameWorks and uh, had to talk the store manager into it and had to kind of work and train some of the guys that were on the floor to maintain the games. And unfortunately, at some point in time, for whatever the reasons, that manager uh, was let go. Uh, the other decision was to get rid of the text that they had. The net result was that the games fell into disrepair. Uh, I won't get into the details as to what the impact was on the earnings of the games and the new players that came in specifically because of them. But we wound up turning our attention over to a place called Level 257, uh, which is in a neighboring part of the mall out in the northwest suburbs. And there the, uh, the manager was receptive. We kind of changed the pricing policy on his cards. Uh, the Selfie League was born. And the games have been maintained uh, with staff of people of fellows who are very cognizant of, you know, when things are not functioning right. So, right. you know, for them, the return on investment has been exceptional. And we've taken what were, you know, five pinball machines kind of left off on the side to uh, now uh, close to a dozen games that they have in operation. Uh, and the plan is to expand that exponentially in uh, the coming months because there's enough traffic to bear that makes it worthwhile. And it's not going to be all new games. Some of it is going to be some of the vintage classics mixed in, although they've now become somewhat of a test location for uh, some of the Stern product as well as uh, Jersey Jack. Now, the plan as well is uh, for Dutch Pinball, if and right. when Big Kowski is available, for them to get one of those. You're looking forward to that. Looking forward to maybe, if it ever happens, Aliens, to, to kind of really populate their lineup because they have uh, an insatiable audience. And again, they're treating the games the way that they should be treated. Right. Let's let's talk about licensing. And I know it's something that you're very well known for, Roger, and, and you broker a lot of deals between studios and pinball manufacturers. Let's talk about the process of how a license usually comes about. Now, is it is it primarily the manufacturer going to the studio or the license holder and asking permission because they just say, you know, gosh, this this theme would just be perfect for pinball? Or do you see um, studios approaching manufacturers with interest of building a pinball machine for a theme that they have? Is it, is it mixed or is it primarily manufacturer going to the studios these days it's it's a, it's a two-way street uh i mean in the beginning probably less so because there had been you know more than a decade of no one doing anything in the marketplace 
right. meeting Klinghop. You know, the days of Bally with Captain Fantastic and Wizard and Elton John and, uh, well, Elton, that was Captain Fantastic, with Rolling Stones, the original, and so on. Um, you know, that kind of fell by the wayside, as did the industry through some difficult times back in the early 80s on through. So there was a period of dormancy before it kind of picked back up. Um, but uh, it becomes a two-way street. It's it's a shopping market, if you will. You know, I've been around licensing now for uh, over 30 years. And uh, I think that there's a desire on the part of some studios, some personalities, uh, to say, God, wouldn't it be great if we had a pinball machine? All right, who's out there? Uh, by the same token, it's also the opportunity for a manufacturer uh, to say, we want to do this next. Let's see how we can locate who the rights holders are and see right. if they're interested in doing it. Now, so, when, 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 you, when you identify a theme, Roger, or when a manufacturer identifies a theme, let's, let's use an example. Let's say I want to make big trouble in Little China, right? And you go to the studio. Do you have a list of really sort of like important initial questions you ask just to make sure that you can get enough of the rights of the theme to make it worthwhile to make a game on. So stuff like the music, the actors, the clips from the actual movie, you know, how, because that stuff becomes important to actually making a pinball machine that becomes an immersion of that theme. Absolutely. So ideally, um, and, and I'll, I'll go back to, you know, the Williams Bally days. Um, I would kind of keep track as to what was going on out in the outside world and would always be sitting down with the designers and saying, hey, is there any interest? There's a movie coming up or there's this TV series or this personality or whatever. What do you think? And, you know, if you have people that are interested and enthusiastic, um, then you kind of follow through. By the same token, there were times where they'd be coming after me saying, we really want to do this. Go out and get it. And to your point, uh, it really becomes uh, not even a negotiating process. It's almost like a first date. Um, you know, what assets do we need? Do we need likeness rights? Do we need speech? Do I need the ADR, meaning that I can pick up the audio from the movie or the TV show or the concert, if you will? Who has the music rights? Um, so you kind of go through that process to understand what it is that you are potentially going to be buying and what your needs are. Look, if I'm going to go out and buy a car, um, typically I don't ask if it comes with a steering wheel. Uh, does, it have, does it have an engine? There are some things that are kind of basic in terms of my making a purchasing decision to buy that automobile, and I have some certain expectations. Whether it's a used car or a new one, you know, I want to make sure it at least has tires and things. It's the same process. I do a lot, and I have recently with slot machines, which tend to have become a much more interactive visual experience uh, for anybody who's seen any of the the newer generation of slot machines. Pinball, it's a little bit different, although in the case of you know some of the newer games uh, that are now featuring monitors, yes, you want to have footage. You want to have likeness rights. Um, so... There becomes a shopping list of absolutely critical components that you need and want 
in order to pay tribute to a particular theme. If those are not available, then you have a decision to make. And that decision is you either go forward and you take what you can and you try to piece it together as best as you can, or you walk away. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I've had occasions where I've walked away. I've had occasions where the studio didn't have the rights and I had to go after individual talent on my own, which I wound up doing, uh, where maybe the music was separate. Uh, you know, it's a question of how much are you willing to invest in your own time and effort, personally, meaning me, to be able to have somebody's dream realized because this is just something that they want to do. Right. Have to do. Roger, you got to get this for us. I, I want to ask some specific licensing questions about some of the recent games that have come out. But before that, Roger, in terms of the cost, does a studio say the cost for this license is a total amount or is it price per game? Like we're going to allow you to make this game for three years and this many units and we're going to charge you X amount of dollars per unit. How does the financials usually shake out when it comes to signing a licensing agreement? The, the basics are real simple. You have a term, whatever that period of time might be. Uh, it's a question of whether or not you want worldwide rights. So that comes into play. You have an upfront advance guarantee that you wind up structuring. And in the case of pinball, which is different than what I do with slot machines, uh, because there's no revenue share, uh, it's a uh, price point per game that you're going to be building. Uh, in some cases, depending on the structure of things, uh, you may have it for a specific quantity of machines versus open-ended. You know, I didn't sit down, we'll use Adam's family. I didn't sit down with, uh, well, it was originally Orion Pictures, but Paramount took it over. I didn't go to them saying, hi, um, we're going to build a little bit over 21,000 machines. Or the expectation being, look, I know we can deliver 10 to 15,000 and I didn't have to go back to them saying, guess what? It's incredibly successful. We're going to build more. That was all built into the contract and to the term. So there was no limitation on what we could or could not deliver, if you will, out into the marketplace. Right. Well, there's so been a lot of question for you. Yeah, I think, I, I think it does. And there's a lot of, um, because I know that uh, there's a misconception that, the reason that the price points for pinball machines are so high is because the licenses cost so much. Yeah, or they run out in three years and it's something like a pharma company they need to sell it or else they lose it. So we heard a lot of that with Dutch pinball. Well, you pinball. can get an extension. You can get an option for renewal. I mean, those are the things that are typically, if you're doing it the right way, that are built into the original negotiations. It's what I do. It's what I've always done. Right, because I know there was concern uh, when Dutch hit a sort of quagmire with their manufacturer uh, that they had a three-year deal to build Lebowski, and so if there's too much of a delay, that would their license would somehow expire. So you're saying they could extend that? Uh, I got them an extension. Okay, so, so you got it, it. It wasn't a problem. Right now, is that uh, again? I mean, that may be part and parcel, and and with all due modesty. Uh, because of the relationships that I have, uh, where maybe if it had been somebody else, that might not have been as easy the case right. as it turned out to be. But it, for me, it was a very simple process. Uh, so you, with Barry you, and Yap 
needing to have uh, an extension. And I was like, okay, here. You're, here you you're, go. You're deeply connected, obviously, with a lot of studios, and you've, you've been around the block for, for, for many decades um, with, with different contacts. Another, another game or two games that sort of have been talked about a lot because there's uh, an actress that appears on one game and not in another is Sigourney Weaver that appeared on Ghostbusters but not in Alien. And there's just a lot of speculation about why that is. And, 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 and Roger, I just wanted to ask if you had any insight into her situation when it comes to pinball is she exclusively with stern was there just money she wanted to be part of alien and it was just different because of the studios with the different films do you, do you have any knowledge of, of of how you know how that all played out that she's on a stern uh, game and not in a in a highway game uh, i guess that would be a question better asked of andrew highway because i wound up negotiating the original deal for highway pinball and whatever they wound up doing subsequently with Fox, the owner of the IP, the intellectual property, and whatever the talent usage was, right. uh, was something that could have been, I guess, circumvented. I wasn't involved or asked to be involved other than being able to be at the front end of it. So, you know, however that proceeded, right. and, uh, you know, uh, I can't. I can't comment on it because I, I don't know. In terms of the question, the way that you structured it, was there some level of exclusivity or what have you? Look, when anybody does a, a film or a TV project or whatever else, there are certain rights that they wind up giving um, with some talent. Uh, there's an exclusion to being on any type of ancillary merchandise. They don't want their face on a T-shirt. They don't want it to be part of an action figure. They don't want it to be in a video game. I mean, whatever it might be, uh, there are some conditions that uh, various actors and performers wind up stipulating. So in the case of Ghostbusters, uh, I guess the assumption would be that those rights existed where either Stern had to go to each of the actors, cast members, to say, hi, we want to use your face, your voice, whatever. And they didn't have a problem or they paid whatever the additional cost might have been as opposed to potentially the way that Andrew Highway proceeded with aliens. Uh, but, you know, would it have been a situation of, and we're talking about Sigourney Weaver, Sigourney Weaver saying, God, I really love being in Ghostbusters and, uh, oh, they're going to do a pinball machine. That's great. I'll let them do it. Oh, wait, there's another company wanting to do aliens. Yeah, I really didn't like my role in that. I don't want part of it. Uh, so, you know, no, 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 no. Uh, I, I, again, um, speaking from a, a point of, of sheer ignorance because I wasn't involved in the latter stages of Aliens and wasn't involved at all with Ghostbusters for Stern, um, you know, I, I find it uh, somewhat uh, interesting, if you will, because I haven't really seen the Aliens pinball machine. Well, it's interesting, I think, for fans too, Rogers. She appeared with her full likeness and voice in the Zen pinball version of Alien, uh, okay. which which had all of the, I believe, the maybe three movies. There was three versions that they re they launched those on Alien Day last year. So, 
I think so. It seems like she is available. So it probably was either a money issue or some, you know, she wanted more for that role. And, and Alien is having a real big resurgence uh, with, with the Alien Day now being a moment that Fox is celebrating. There's a new Alien movie coming out. Yep, uh, yep next month. Um, Roger, let's talk about another sort of licensing deal that didn't go well. And we know you were not a part of this one. When you saw Kevin Kulik announced that he had the rights to <laughs> Predator featuring the most uh, expensive, probably Hollywood actor of all time to license. Were you immediately suspect of, of his claims to have secured that license? No, not at all. I mean, I took it on face value that they had the license. And I remember contacting uh, a dear friend of mine at Fox to say, congratulations, I see that you guys are doing Predator. And I was like, huh? No. No. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I, I knew Kevin when he was much younger, and, you know, he was playing pinball, uh, you know, against uh, Josh and Zach as young little people. So I thought that he'd gotten everything squared away, and obviously uh, he wasn't able to get it squared away. And, uh, you know, things kind of fell by the wayside. When so, when you called Fox and they were like, well, what are we talking about? Um, at that point, did you, did you like warn anyone you knew who was like in on it or putting money down or was it just like, like, I'll just let to see how this thing plays out for people because it doesn't seem good. I don't remember exactly the timing. It might've been after a pinball expo. I mean, I don't go to a lot of shows and events, um, in all honesty. Um, and, and this was kind of like early on in the process. Right. Uh, and the person that I was talking to, it, it would not have been uncommon to say, yeah, we're in the process of getting the contracts done or that came through someone else in the department. Um, because, you know, uh, I think if you, if you look back at it, Predator was out there for about three or four years. Right. Various stages. So, you know, in the early days, I think that that was my first, wow, that's kind of cool and neat. And, you know, look, I worked with Arnold on T2 for both the video game as well as the pinball machine. So it wasn't foreign to me in terms of, you know, being able to use his likeness or whatever else and just thought, okay, this is kind of neat. And I think that, you know, there's, there's a greater level of, of um, detail involved in licensing over the years admittedly there's been any number of people that have approached me saying hi and what and to even to your point to the question that you asked before you know how can i do a license what can i do and on and on and on i want to do this i'm just going to build it for myself and so on you know it's i remember seeing what was it the the late bill paxton pinball machine that ben heckendorf had uh or heckendorn sorry i don't right. want to his name that i saw when i went up to the midwest gaming classic years ago and i thought god that's kind of neat um, and it was only for his personal use. He wasn't going to be building them. And people say, well, if I only want to build five, you know, I mean, there are conditions that you have to be aware of because people are very protective of their intellectual properties as well. They should be, you know, if somebody were to say, hi, uh, Chris, we're going to do a pinball machine based on you. Hope you don't mind. Goodbye. So long. We're just going to be selling it to our 10 friends. I'm sure that you would step up saying, Hey, time out. Wait a minute. Seriously, really? No, you can't use my likeness. You know, 
or you it, wind it'd up probably be the worst it. game ever. It, they, oh, the, but, they wouldn't even activate the flippers if it was a Canada game. Say, but, you know, it, it could be a situation where you know you want to have some control over how you are portrayed out in the real world in some right. type enterprise. And it doesn't have to be a pinball machine. It can be a T-shirt. It can be anything. Well, what's but, interesting with with and and I work a lot with with IP lawyers on a daily basis and IP infringement. When you see games like Buffy making the rounds at shows and The Matrix, right? These are obviously homebrew games well, and that, they're, and they're one and they're one-offs, right? And, and I think from that standpoint, as long as you're not trying to do anything commercially with them, then sure, you know, knock yourselves they out. Sold, they sold some of those Matrix games, you know, at some point. Uh, well, but again, that's things that I don't want to be aware of. But right. occasion, as long as you're only doing it like this, and you're not going to go any further. But you also run the risk of, look, with the internet and everything else and things are splashed around and, you know, in the unlikeliest places, somebody may see something where it's like, hey, time out. What's going on? Somebody is trying to capitalize right. on this property, on me, on my client, right. on whoever. Uh, yeah, you run a risk of somebody coming in with a cease and desist, wanting to sue you, um, and uh, suddenly you're kind of like caught between a rock and a hard place because maybe you didn't make an initial inquiry to the rights holder to say hi. Uh, are there, are there any games out, are there any games out there, Roger, that people know about where a cease and desist went out after a game was out and things had to be altered or anything had to be removed or I mean, when we, we saw the Kahlua bottle on, you mentioned predator before. Yes. I mean, there was a cease and desist, you know, Kevin and I talked and uh, wanted to see if I could go in and salvage things. And it was, basically too late right uh, i was able at least to not have him get totally sued but you know again i think that the, the, the well, he's, of, he's he's getting sued now <laughs> um, right. well from other people but i'm just saying that yeah. you know the key to all of it is that if you are going to do something as your own passion project and you're going to display it out in the real world it's not just going to be in your basement because you want to show it off it's Kind of, I think, what do you have to lose by contacting the rights holder and say, hi, I'm going to be stripping down an old Swords of Fury and I'm going to turn it into a Buffy the Vampire Slayer game and it's only for me. Is that okay? Right. And if the answer is yes, just as long as you don't do X, Y, and Z, or if the answer is no, then do your Buffy game. Have it be in your basement, and your friends come by, tell them that they can't take any pictures on their iPhone or whatever else, and have it be a private enterprise. Right. But if you're going to be out there in the public, well, then guess what? Then that means that uh, potentially um, you are out there unfettered and uh, somewhat uh, having some potential liability that you wouldn't necessarily have to have. And I think the area, Roger, we saw, I think we see a lot more infringement in the world of modding for games, right? I think you know, we've seen oh, 10 years ago, it was like, you could take anything, you could go buy a Gandalf inside of Toys R Us and light up his staff and resell it for a hundred bucks and, and no one said a thing. And, and we've seen a real crackdown over the last couple of years in terms of uh, licensing around the mod community because... You know, these manufacturers pay a lot of money for that permission to associate with that license. And 
for the private sector to be able to capitalize without paying that license as much as it's it sucks losing those mods it's 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 it sucks paying a lot of money and then watching someone else make a lot of money off of something for free absolutely again i mean there there needs to be a level of sensibility and sensitivity right well, Roger, we're, we're on the hour period, which I told Josh I wouldn't go too far over. But one final oh, question because it, I'm when sorry. we. No, it's, no, this is good. This is good. I always, I always try to keep the interviews around an hour, but I definitely want to have you back on because there's, I think we could talk all night about pinball. Were you sad and. and be a little bit long winded, so my apologies. No, this is, this is great. Believe me, my listeners listen to me rant and, and, and make so many suppositions that to actually hear from someone who knows <laughs> what they're talking about, this will be this will you're going to get a thousand listens at least on this podcast. It'd be great. Um, were you sad to see? Because I, I think that when we talk about themes and original pinball, I do think people are starving for originality. I, I also think beautiful games i think artwork i think lights i think music i think what really draws people into a pinball machine sort of lost its way in the you know over the last decade and it's coming back with hand-drawn art when you saw what happened to john papaduke were you really sad to see a guy who and you've probably worked with him in the past but someone who has that sort of creative genius but if it's not controlled if it's not surrounded by people who know what they're doing it can sputter out of control as as it did with zidware um, but to lose someone who was a guy who came out with original themes that were gorgeous games are you sad to see him sort of fall sort of into really a terrible place in terms of the, his standing with pinball uh i i think that uh john unfortunately thought that he could do something which he didn't have the complete capabilities of doing right. uh, set himself up for uh, failure because he wasn't practical and realistic. And instead of biting the bullet sooner, he waited until it was later. And the net result is that, yeah, I mean, uh, that's kind of like a, a bad word. It's like swearing. Don't say that name. Don't say that word. Right. American pinball starts up and immediately and originally to them or, or instantaneously it's like that's john papaduke's game that that houdini thing and oh my god they're gonna do magic girl and they're doing this and this and this and we don't want this we don't want this you know how do you excise yourself away from that person so it's a tragedy it right. really is i mean you know if shakespeare were alive today and he was looking at the tragic flaws of people a la othello hamlet and others and he was somewhat curious and invested in wanting to do a pinball type of uh, play, uh, John would have been the, uh, the perfect person to kind of center it around in regard to doing almost everything the wrong way with the best right. of intentions, I'm sure. But, right. uh, you know, it, it, I think John found himself in the ocean and there wasn't a lifeboat around, uh, to rescue him and he just flailed. So, right. uh, it is unfortunate because, truthfully, and maybe left for a better time, and I, I don't want to get into it now, all of us are getting older. And, you know, where's the next generation of designers? I mean, everybody can only go for so long. And, you know, bless his heart, Steve Kordak was still kicking it well into his 90s. Um, but the problem that you have is that there isn't a new breed. You know, Jim Patla and Greg Kamick came out of Gordon Tech as teenagers, and that was a local uh, high school 
uh, in the Chicagoland area near the Bally factory. And they were uh, trained under Ted Zale. Um, you know, that is the, the biggest concern because you have a finite number of people, no matter who you think and how you think of it, in terms of anybody can design a pinball machine and, and so on. There, there is a skill, there is a craft to it. And uh, I know that there's a new hire at Stern who uh, I was surprised to, uh, to hear may not be as young as I thought he was. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's old. But again, I mean, where, where are the, the folks in their 20s and early 30s who are going to be that next era of uh, designers and artists and programmers and so on? So uh, I, I think with John, it's unfortunate because there was a wealth of creativity and projects right. that he wanted to bring to life that unless it's done under some veil of secrecy, and, and in this day and age, it's very difficult to accomplish, uh, they'll never see the light. Right. So it's become persona non grata. Right, and it's sad. I have um, I have a bunch of photos from inside the Zidware factory, and it, it literally is like Willy Wonka's sort of laboratory. I mean, he had so many things going on at once, and they're all amazing, and they're all interesting, but they're all like... 30% of the way there, you know, and it's just sort of yep. the sad part about it is, um, I remember going out there and, uh, you know, visiting with John, you know, a few years back and seeing the setup and it was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. And look how organized and look how clean and wow, you have a 3d printer and you're printing stuff and creating things and so on and so forth. And yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was a great thought process. Um, but you know, right. again, it, uh, it's a, it's a tragedy. So I feel for John and I feel for the community that, uh, you know, got burned right. unnecessarily by everything that took place. Um, uh, so Let, let's, let's, let's get back to, let's end on a high note on a scale of one yes, to 10, please. Roger, how so, excited are you for star Wars to, to make its way into the pinball world, which will bring probably more people into pinball than any theme over the last like 10 to 15 years easily you think so oh yeah star wars <laughs> but it's been done before but it's never been that good yeah i know episode one really kind of left a lot to be desired but the stern games weren't bad they weren't bad but but those games for, for, for they didn't era. really come out when those movies came out. i mean it's the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, right? Star Wars is bigger now than ever before in terms of just it's generational. Let's put it this way. The hope is that it will be a kick-ass game, uh, that it's going to have all the ingredients that everybody wants, uh, whether or not it's going to be focused on a new movie, whether it's going to be something that's focused on It's all the original the three. Before. Right, I know. A... <laughs> so... So then the question becomes, is it still relevant for everybody if it's based on that? Because they'll no, be I, looking for something else again. So uh, my hope is that, look, uh, a license unto itself cannot make a bad game good. It cannot make a good game great. But it can absolutely enhance and embellish a great game. And what you need absolutely positively is just a killer layout and design, deep and yet solid rules. And once you have that all together in your little melting pot, 
uh, and you add the right license to it with all the necessary ingredients, meaning whatever the talent might be, whatever the music and sound effects and so on. Once you can put all of that stuff together and you stir it all up, then you have magic. Right. If any component of that fails, then you're less than totally and completely magical. But yeah, I mean, I have great hopes that uh, they are going to achieve something that will, to your point, bring people in, cause a lot of excitement and anticipation. And maybe, going back to one of my original points, maybe we'll find uh, more of those games out in commercial operation, which benefits everybody. All right. Roger, let's end on one final question. What two games do you think achieved that? Took a theme, integrated everything you talked about in terms of shots, design, music, uh, you know, layout, and just were magical. Like at the end of the day, it like it just nailed it and it all clicked. And you just look at that and you're like, you know what? That's the bar that when I look at bringing a theme into a pinball game, we're aiming for. Um. I, I'm going to have to answer it with not just two. All right. Um, but, but um, I'll, I'll take my hat off because I don't want people thinking that I'm just a pure Homer. Uh, and, that, and that's a home person, not Homer from The Simpsons. Uh, I think that uh, Jurassic Park, the original one, accomplished it from one of our competitors. Uh, I know that everybody is a gaga over uh, Simpsons Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a really strong game. Uh, but the, the ones that stand out for me, uh, Adam's family. Right. Uh, I think that the timing and the ingredients, absolutely. Uh, Twilight Zone. And again, I'm not just picking Pat Lawler games, but I think Twilight Zone, and even the feedback from Carol Serling, Rod Serling's wife, was incredibly encouraging. And, and the artwork and all the touches, the subtleties, all the things that, you know, Larry and, and Ted and Pat were able to weave into that. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, Star Trek uh, that we did, uh, Next Gen, uh, that Steve Ritchie did, I think accomplished that. Uh, a personal favorite of mine as well is what Mark Ritchie did with Indiana Jones. Right. And being able to take all three movies and have them just dialed in. Artwork. Gameplay, you know, whether people like the games that I just mentioned or don't, I think that some of those were the quintessential. I think that the uh, the first two Elvira games, and we'll see what happens with the third, uh, I think that those really accomplished something in terms of really capturing the essence of Cassandra Peterson um, in, in a way that was incredibly personal to her. And I think that it really kind of uh, showcased uh, all of the things that we would associate with uh, right. the Mistress of the Dark. So those are the ones that kind of come off the top of my head. I'm sure that I'm missing some others, but I think that no, those, those are... are those are all great, and I think you know what what all those games prove is they've all, decades later, 20 years later, are still talked about today, are still sought after, are still collected, and are still enjoyed after all these years, which is... Which is really a testament to the magic that they brought when they came out. I mean, it's there's very few video games that people still want to play and enjoy 20 years after they come out, right? So it's um, it's an exciting time. We're excited for 2017. And Roger, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I know the listeners are going to love all of this. 
And and hopefully we can get you back on the show um, again this year because I think a lot is going to transpire um, in 2017 and we're going to have a lot to talk about as we look at where this hobby goes uh, this year, especially. Uh, I, I look forward to it. And uh, I thank you for uh, having the interest in wanting to talk to me. And again, hopefully that uh, people uh, enjoy uh, what we discussed. I know they will. Well, Roger, thank you and have a great night. You too. Take All care. Right. <laughs>